Radio Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You'll listen to the sound of universal compassion. Today's 4th December. We will continue listening to Tianjin Tosin's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. And please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to our discussion on what it takes to become a Bodhisattva a person whose sole intention is to be of the greatest benefit to all beings everywhere. A bodhisattva must, of course, strive to become enlightened because an enlightened being has the greatest insight, ability and power to help others. An ordinary doctor or psychologist might be able to cure problems related specifically to this life, but what about the difficulties that have their origin in previous lives? A Buddha with his clairvoyance would be able to see such origins and prescribe the best practices for the results. Let's take the example, for instance, of the case of James Leininger, the boy who who became famous for his memory of a previous life as a fighter pilot in World War II. I've spoken about him in a previous program, but he's a good example of how what happens to us carries through into subsequent lives. James was born in 1998 to Bruce and Andrea Leininger, a highly educated American couple. From an early age, he loved to play with planes, but then he started getting nightmares about being a fighter pilot shot down. I'd wake him up and he'd be screaming, his mother told ABC News. And when she asked him what he was dreaming about, he told her, Airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. When she asked him who the little man was, he said it was himself. James's parents couldn't get to the bottom of what was going on until Andrea's mother suggested they take him to a therapist who was also a specialist in past life recall. James soon began revealing details of the life of a former fighter pilot who was shot down at Iwo Jima in World War II. James's father was highly sceptical and to disprove this, had anything to do with an historical event, started researching what the boy had said. To his surprise, it all matched up. James was describing the life and death of James Houston, a pilot of a plane that launched off the aircraft carrier USS Natoma Bay. Among the details James revealed was the name of the ship. Later on, Bruce Leininger contacted men who had served with James Houston as well as Houston's remaining family, and they all confirmed details that could not have been known to the Leinigers, but which the boy had revealed, some details only one or two of James Houston's family had known. The point I'm trying to make with this story is that when a toddler, James Leininger had made violent drawings of war with battleships, fighter planes, explosions and so on. After his story had become famous through reports on American TV channels, 
the Japanese government invited him and his parents to go to Japan and visit the place where the Natoma Bay had been anchored. When the boy got there, he pointed out the exact spot that James Houston's plane had gone down and became very emotional when the family went out in a boat and threw flowers into the sea and did a little farewell ceremony at the spot. Back home in America, from that time on, James's drawings were peaceful, with planes flying serenely through a blue sky, flowers blooming, yachts sailing among dolphins in a calm sea, and so on. It's obvious that the trauma of his death in a previous life had followed James Line again to this life, and if his family hadn't followed through as they did, it may not have been possible for him to lay that trauma and its effect to arrest as he did. Although the remembered events may have faded as he grew up, the effect on his mind would have remained. That effect could have caused negative actions and destructive mental tendencies leading to possible psychological or physical problems later on in this or coming lives. Anybody treating him wouldn't know what the cause was, and so could really only address the symptoms. With the escalating effects, it would be difficult for James to get a complete resolution. However, a Buddha or high bodhisattva would see what the cause was immediately and could recommend appropriate approaches to free him, even if the events had long faded from his memory. This indicates why we have to become a Buddha before we will really be able to help others free themselves from their suffering. So many of our problems originate in lives previous to this one that to finally resolve them is difficult without the knowledge of a highly realized being and we may have to go through a lot of suffering before the calm is finally exhausted. To become a Buddha, one first has to take on the responsibility of a Bodhisattva, which is why we're studying the Master Shantideva's text, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life in these programs. Last Sunday, we finished up to verse 22 of the first chapter, which explains the benefits of bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Those of you who were with us will remember that we spoke about two types of bodhicitta, aspiring and engaging. Aspiring bodhicitta is the realization that bodhicitta is an extremely beneficial intention, but it also involves a frightening amount of work. I will have to give up my preconceptions, habitual tendencies and biases, even give up all thought for my own well-being and concentrate only on the well-being of all other beings, whose numbers are uncountable. I will have no rest until they are all enlightened and free. When ordinary people contemplate that, they may balk and think, I can't possibly take that on now, though it's so beneficial I'd like to in the future. That is aspiring bodhicitta. Such people may then think again and again about bodhicitta until they come to the realization, now I must really do something about this. I must take on the responsibility to help all other beings. Then they take what is called the bodhisattva vow and engage in the deeds of a bodhisattva, basically developing the six perfections, generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. That is called engaged bodhicitta. Shantideva says that although an aspiring bodhicitta brings an immense amount of positive potential, it is not much compared to the positive potential from engaged bodhicitta. Those with engaged bodhicitta accumulate such huge amounts of positive potential even when they are distracted or asleep. 
You may remember, if you were with us last week, that I read a teaching given by Ringu Toko Rinpoche on why the positive potential is so great. He talked about the four limitlessnesses that Ara Bodhisattvas concern. Limitless numbers of sentient beings should be free from limitless sufferings and attain limitless happiness for a limitless amount of time. A mind that is so open to all other beings and so completely free from self-absorption must inevitably attract an enormous positive potential. And now, before we continue with the text, let's take a moment, as we normally do, to set a motivation for the program today. As the Bodhisattva's intention and resultant merit are so great, let's make that our motivation, that this program today may become the cause for us and all those listening to gain full Buddhahood, so that we may lead all beings to enlightenment. If you're really not ready to set such a motivation, at least generate the wish that the program is a cause for you to attain your own enlightenment so you can help as many others as possible. Just as the Buddha did, when after he became enlightened, he taught for 45 years and helped many others become arhats and highly realized beings on the path to enlightenment. Thank you. Now the last two verses in last Sunday's program read, Even if the thought to relieve living creatures of merely a headache is a beneficial intention endowed with infinite goodness, then what need is there to mention the wish to dispel their inconceivable misery, wishing every single one of them to realize boundless good qualities? And then the text continues, Do even fathers and mothers have such a benevolent intention as this? Do the gods and sages... Does even Brahma have it? If those beings have never before even dreamt of such an attitude for their own sake, how would it ever arise for the sake of others? Now, of course, parents usually want everything good for their children. They will even sacrifice their own well-being for the kid's, kid's sake. When I was a child, we were never a very wealthy family, and at the times that my father was out of a job, we struggled quite a bit. I only learned later that sometimes we didn't have enough to buy food for the whole family of two adults and three kids. And without saying anything, my mother shared her portion amongst the rest of us and went without. This, I think, is not uncommon among parents when times get tough. But how many parents actually think it is possible to free their children not only from hunger but from all sufferings and difficulties? all habitual mental patterns that lead to destructive behavior and unhappiness. Shantideva refers to Hinduism when he says that even all the Hindu sages and the gods led by Brahma their king do not think this is possible. Not realizing that it's possible for themselves, they're hardly likely to have an intention to lead others to complete freedom from suffering. In her book, No Time to Lose, Pema Chodron makes the point here that Shantideva may be making reference to the caste system that held that only some people were worthy of liberation and others, due to their negative karma, were not. I don't know if that's still true of today's caste system in India, but Buddhism, of course, says that everybody has the potential to liberate themselves and reach Buddhahood, even animals or those in the most dire situations. Then the next verse continues, This intention to benefit all beings, which does not arise in others even for their own sake, is an extraordinary jewel of the mind, and its birth is an unprecedented wonder. 
In truth, most of us only want to get through our daily life without too much strife and don't think much further than that. It's common in the West, when you talk about death or whatever may come after life, for people to say, don't talk about that, it's just morbid. And they switch the conversation to what happened in the latest episode of Shortland Street or the last Warriors rugby game. We don't contemplate at all whether it's possible to be completely free of our suffering and its causes, the negative mental habits and tendencies. People have said to me, you have to have suffering because if you didn't, you wouldn't know what happiness is. So they don't even try to find out whether happiness without suffering is possible. As Pema Children says, most of us are not impassioned about de-escalating our emotions and prejudices or awakening bodhicitta. This true good is not our main focus. And so, without this aspiration for the ultimate goodness for ourselves, how can we have it for others? This opportunity to awaken bodhicitta is an extraordinary jewel of the mind. It is both very precious and extremely rare, like the Cullinan diamond. And Pema Chodron again says, to experience something that liberates us from the narrow-mindedness of our biases and preconceptions is, as Shanti Davis says, an unprecedented wonder. What's more, there's no one who cannot experience this if they're willing to give it a try. His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out that though Bodhicitta is very difficult to generate, in this life we have a conducive environment, highly accomplished teachers, like His Holiness himself, and also virtuous intentions. So we have all the conditions to at least give rise to aspirational bodhicitta. The thought, how wonderful it would be if as soon as possible I can generate this mind of enlightenment. So we should at least give it some consideration. Then Shantideva goes on, How can I fathom the depths of the goodness of this jewel of the mind, the panacea that relieves the world of pain and is the source of all its joy? Now, because the focus of bodhicitta is the freedom from suffering and attainment of long-lasting happiness of the whole gamut of beings, no matter in what their physical or psychological situation, Shantideva says that this awakening mind is the panacea for the whole world's suffering. We should note here that he talks of the panacea as a jewel of the mind. It is not that the panacea is some kind of product like a pill to cure, cure all ills. It's a mental commitment. No matter what device we invent to make our lives easier or happier, it will only have a limited effectiveness, and nothing we can construct in the material world will ever be a solution for all our woes. Nor will any system of government, philosophy, or even religious teaching that touts itself as the one and only way all else is evil. The panacea that Shantideva is talking about is the determination to overcome all negative and harmful attitudes and habits based on self-centeredness in ourselves and others, no matter what form those negativities take. For it is those negativities that bring the world its pain, and the opposite, the other-centeredness and loving heart, free from self-cherishing, that is the source of all the world's joy. This is why Shantideva says that the goodness of this intention is unfathomable. He goes on, If merely a benevolent intention excels venerating the Buddhas, then what need to mention striving to make all beings without exception happy? 
His Holiness quotes one sutra, perhaps the King of Concentration Sutra, which says we gain a lot of positive potential by making extensive offerings to the Buddhas and highly realized beings. But that merit is far surpassed by developing great compassion for one instant for all sentient beings. Great compassion here means compassion for all beings without any bias whatsoever. So the same compassion for Hitler as for our own dear mother. Nevertheless, as Buddhists, we make offerings and worship the Buddha every day, sometimes even with fervent prayers. But we refuse to control our mind in relation to the other beings sharing this earth with us. We argue with them, we scorn them, and we even kill them for our own benefit or entertainment. This truly makes no sense, and His Holiness calls it very disappointing and sad. And then the text goes on, Although wishing to be free of misery, they run towards misery itself. Although wishing to have happiness, like an enemy, they ignorantly destroy it. Now, if we closely examine our motive for anything that we do, it's easy to see that our actions are all directed to either gaining some happiness or freeing ourselves from suffering. Nobody chases suffering and shuns happiness. Even the smallest insects run away from danger and go looking for something food, for instance, to make them contented. So if this is the case, the question arises, why should I look out for the happiness of other beings? They're going to seek and find it for themselves anyway. The problem is, of course, that beings mostly don't know what brings happiness and what brings suffering. Running away from pain and always seeking pleasure, they actually create the causes for misery. Rather than relieve themselves of suffering, they make sure that they will experience it. Let's take a common example. A farmer loves mutton, so he raises sheep to be duly slaughtered and turned into chops. From time to time, instead of sending a sheep to the meatworks, he kills it himself, so that he and his family can enjoy mutton night after night for dinner, perhaps for breakfast and lunch as well. So, by killing the sheep, he thinks he's causing happiness for himself and his family. And he does get a temporary kind of satisfaction from the meat. However, every time he kills, he's creating the causes for a a horrendous rebirth. If all the conditions such as object, intention, act and dedication, in this case rejoicing in the kill, are there, he could be looking at a rebirth in the hell realms, or at least as animals that will be violently killed life after life. We also often find ourselves in situations in which, even though we may have the wish to benefit others, our conditioning is so great that we inevitably cause problems, without sometimes even realizing it. As Pema Chodron says, again and again we unwittingly make matters worse. As His Holiness points out, as long as we are under the influence of self-grasping and self-cherishing, suffering will flow to us like endless ripples of water on the surface of a pond. And all ordinary beings are under the influence of these two minds, self-grasping and self-cherishing. And so all are constantly attracting suffering through their misguided actions. This is one reason why we should take on the responsibility to show beings how to stop actions that only lead to misery and to teach them to cultivate those states of mind that lead to enlightenment and complete freedom from suffering. His Holiness also points out another question that may arise from this verse. It is the sole purpose of Buddhas and highly realized Bodhisattvas to continually help beings, 
so why should I become a bodhisattva? And His Holiness answers by saying that while it is true that such high beings have no self-interest and only work for the benefit of others, we have a strong karmic connection with certain beings that such Buddhas and Bodhisattvas do not have. Without the connection, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can only give beings limited assistance, and so we are actually in a much better position to help them extensively. That is why we should try to attain Buddhahood as quickly as possible. Not only will it end our own suffering, but will end their suffering much more quickly as well. Shantideva then goes on, For those who are deprived of happiness and burdened with many sorrows, it satisfies them with all joys, dispels all suffering, and clears away all confusion. Where is there a comparable virtue? Where is there even such a friend? Where is there merit similar to this? The it Shantideva is talking about here is the intention to lead all beings to enlightenment, the mind of bodhicitta. Remember in a previous program, I spoke about the three kinds of generosity. The generosity of material things like food, clothing and so on. The generosity of freedom from fear, in which you might, for instance, comfort a child who has woken screaming from a nightmare. Even letting them sleep in your bed for comfort for the rest of the night. And the third type of generosity is that of giving the Dharma. These last two verses refer to this. By teaching the Dharma to those whose lives are filled with problems and difficulties, we can show them not only how to lead much more blissful lives, but also to eliminate the ignorance and the confusion that is the foundation of our conditioned existence. His Holiness says that the words clears the confusion refers to both the afflictive obscurations, that is the afflictive emotions and karma that cloud the mind, and the subtle imprints that afflictive emotion and karma leave on the mind, the cognitive obscurations. Once these two obscurations are gone, one becomes a Buddha and attains all happiness and is completely free of all suffering. Thus Shantideva asks if you can find a better friend than this mind of bodhicitta, a greater virtue or merit, implying, of course, that nothing surpasses such a mind. However, Pema Chodron points out that we cannot, of course, eliminate anyone's ignorance apart from our own, and so our assistance to others must only be through example and teaching. Our help always begins with ourselves, as our experience is the only thing we really have to share. The more insight we have into our experience, what Pema Chodron calls the honest recognition of our foibles, the more beneficial it will be. We might set ourselves high standards, but then fail again and again to live up to them. Recognizing our weaknesses, we are humbled and find it easy to empathize with others when they go through difficulties and make mistakes. Shantideva continues, If whoever repays a kind deed is worthy of some praise, then what need to mention the Bodhisattva who does good without its being asked of him? The world honors as virtuous a man who sometimes gives a little plain food disrespectfully to a few beings that satisfies them for only half a day. What need be said then of one who eternally bestows the peerless bliss of the Sugatas upon limitless numbers of beings, thereby fulfilling all their hopes? In many places in the world, it is considered a virtuous practice to give food to beggars on certain auspicious days. 
I know that in both the Sri Lankan and Tibetan Buddhism, it is traditional to hand out food to beggars on Wesak, the day celebrating Buddha's birth, enlightenment and Paranirvana. Ritualized giving to beggars on certain days was evidently also generally practiced in India in the old days, and perhaps this is what Shantideva refers to in these verses. On those auspicious days, you were praised if you gave the beggars food, even though on other days you might not have thrown them so much as a half a slice of bread. Shantideva compares such generosity to the generosity of the Bodhisattva, whose main intent is to give everything for as long as there is anything to give, and whose greatest gift is that of the, of the path to enlightenment. Not only does the Bodhisattva want to give such bounty to only a for, fortunate few, but has the intention to so benefit all suffering beings everywhere. Naturally, Shantideva finds no comparison between the two intentions, nor the immense benefit that the one has over the other. Pema Chodron says that although many of us have a plan to give to homeless people, we can go further. We could aspire for them to be free of all their pain, she says. We could aspire to extend our own comfort and happiness to them and to homeless people everywhere. Even more to the point, we could recognize how much we have in common and give freely without resentment or con condescension. Bestowing the peerless bliss of the Sugatas, in other words, leading such people to Buddhahood, might be a bit beyond us. But we can practice when we get sick, thinking of others in the same boat and wishing that they be free of their sickness, even going so far as to imagining taking their sickness on ourselves so that they don't have to bear it. And when we have a pleasant experience, Pema Children mentions a soothing bath, for instance, we can aspire for others who are having a much less happy time to have the same experience as us. So as we lie back and soak blissfully, we can remember people who are freezing and longing for a little warmth and make a wish or prayer that they may have a similar experience to ours. We extend this kind of thinking to every experience we have, good or bad, and so create a great deal of positive potential. Then Shantideva says, The Buddha has said that whoever bears an evil thought against a benefactor, such as that Bodhisattva, will remain in hell for as many eons as there were evil thoughts. But if a virtuous attitude should arise in that regard, its fruits will multiply far more than that. When bodhisattvas greatly suffer, they generate no negativity. Instead, their virtues naturally increase. Westerners are often not very comfortable with the idea of hell, thinking that there's no such fiery place inhabited by devils with horns, pointed tails, and torture instruments. In Buddhism, hell doesn't refer to a place God sends you for eternity, but rather a state of mind that we bring on ourselves. If we develop and nurture an aggressive mind, we will suffer aggression, vindictiveness, and misery as long as that mind influences us. And usually, when we allow an aggressive tendency to awaken, it takes hold in our mind, builds on its own story, and grows ever bigger. Thus, our suffering will become ever more pronounced. Similarly, when we develop wholesome thoughts, especially towards an extremely well-intentioned being like a bodhisattva, the positive potential in the mind will greatly increase. When you experience a sickness or broken limb, how do you react? Normally, we complain and make a bit of a fuss, feeling sorry for ourselves and looking for sympathy from others. 
which of course is all self-cherishing. Bodhisattvas, on the other hand, see situations of suffering as opportunities to increase their empathy for others who are suffering and use such opportunities to further their progress on the path. Seeing they have to suffer, the Bodhisattvas visualize taking on all other beings' misery as well and give all their own happiness to those beings. So, Shantideva says, they generate no negativity, but instead their virtues grow even stronger. Now time is up and we have to say goodbye. Thank you for joining the program today and I hope to see you again next week. Please take a moment to dedicate any positive potential from this program to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings, not only yourself. Thank you and goodbye. Now.